be in Judges chapter 3 tonight, if you want to get your Bible there, as we continue our series. Um, I don't know who the man or woman was, but I may owe my life to them. I'll get back to that in a minute. I'll get back to that in a minute. Hold on to that. Um, one of the ways that memories really get, you know, logged onto the hard drive, right? I think it's through an intense emotion that is attached to the memory. Fear is a good one. Terror is an even better one uh, to kind of help you hold on to a memory. I bet some of the things you remember from long ago most clearly, most high def, are those uh, maybe moments of ter- terror or great joy. Um, so I've had a few moments, but uh, one of those moments of terror was on a trip uh, between Oklahoma City and Neosho, Missouri, my hometown. I was going to college in Oklahoma City, lived, uh, grew up in Neosho, and so I would go back and forth and became very familiar with that stretch of I-44 between uh, Tulsa and Oklahoma City and Tulsa and Neosho. Uh, And so I was making this four-hour trek years back when I was college-aged, and on a Sunday afternoon, had been at home over the weekend with my parents, had a nice Sunday dinner with my parents and then got back in the car and hit the road. Uh, And so I was somewhere, you know, probably going around 70 miles an hour between Neosho and Oklahoma City. I think specifically between Tulsa and Oklahoma City when this happened. I had my music going. I had the AC set just right. It was really nice. Uh, And the road, of course, just smooth and straight. And you know where I'm going, right? I was getting a little bit sleepy, a little bit tired. Interstates can do that to you. Uh, and I'm guessing I'm not the only one who's had this experience. So, so there I am, all alone, by myself in the car, cruising along the interstates. And the eyelids kind of become like, like garage doors, just kind of closing and opening very slowly. And the head starts to just kind of bob a little bit. And you fight, right? You're telling yourself, don't, you can't go to sleep. And of course, I know now, you know, you need to pull over or stop and get a cup of coffee. But no, I got to push through. I was thinking, push through and get back uh, to, to the college campus. And so I was fighting that sleep. And that cycle just kind of kept repeating. You know, I kind of snap awake and, okay, okay, this time I'm going to win the battle. And I drifted further and further out of my lane uh, toward the the shoulder area and the drop-off on the side of the shoulder area. And then at some point along that journey, I lost the fight against sleep. And I drifted off. My eyes closed, and I, I don't know, man, I was out five seconds, ten seconds, I don't know, maybe less, I don't know. But I was jolted awake by the, by the sound and by the shaking of the rumble strip. You know what the rumble strips are, right? Uh, the rumble strip that tells you, oh, you're on the shoulder. And so, you know, and, and you're like, okay, okay. And so that, that was my experience. And stabilized the car quickly. I'm like, oh, I was asleep. Wiped a little drool from my mouth, I think. And I found myself in a state of very intense awakeness, as you do after a moment of terror. And you could say I got lucky, you could say I was blessed, whatever you want to say about that. Uh, I knew that I could have very easily gone just sailing off 
the side of the road, down the hillside, and suffered a pretty terrible automobile accident. And so I get back to, I don't know who the person was, the man or the woman, uh, but I may owe my life to them, the civil engineer who first came up with that idea of the rumble strip. And I tried to find out who that was this week. All I could get was the first rumble strips were on the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey back, I think, in the 1960s. Um, But drift, that's what I want to talk about, and that's what we'll get into tonight in Judges chapter 3. Drift. It's natural. Uh, It's almost automatic if you aren't alert, if you are not constantly making adjustments. Uh, Drift while driving on a long trip, on a long straight highway. Drift uh, as you get more and more plugged into work, involved in work, hours at the office, and drift away from the family, the wife and the children. Drift while you're taking care of everyday responsibilities and duties And you find yourself thinking less and less of the Lord and more and more distance appears in that relationship between you and God. Drift while the schedule gets more and more full and worship services become more and more optional. Drift, spiritual drift, that is a topic in Judges 3 and I think pretty much throughout the entire book of Judges. So Israel... They've now, as we come into Judges chapter 3, enjoyed some time of peace, tranquility as a nation. They've gotten settled in to the promised land. And God is getting a little further and further from their hearts and minds. And then God, anxious to keep his people from disaster, from careening off the spiritual highway, um, desiring to save them, God sends a sort of spiritual rumble strip, a guy named Cushan Rishathim, who is the king of Aram. Cushan Rishathim, great name there. Uh, So here's our text. Let's read the text tonight from Judges chapter 3, just a few verses, starting in verse 10. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Cushim Rishathim, king of Aram, Neharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushimershathim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So three things in the text related to this crisis, and they may be interrelated, or they're very, I think they are very interrelated. Uh, one, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Two, they forgot the Lord. Three, they began to worship these Baals, these Asherahs, these regional gods of some of those Canaanite peoples. Now, did they set out 
to do this. Like this is, we are going to year one be faithful to the Lord. Year two, we're going to move a little further. And year 10, we're going to start worshiping other gods. No, they didn't. Of course they didn't. Um, No one plans that. No one plans, I'm going to abandon God today. It was drift. And so this is going to, by the way, be a pattern. And and, I mean, you're going to see this pattern very clearly, very distinctly in each of these stories as we work through the book of Judges. And I introduced you to this Judges cycle, as scholars called it, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we can put that graphic up on the board again. So this is what we'll see. Israel falls into sin and adultery, forgets the Lord. Uh, God will turn them over to a spiritual rumble, rumble strip, to an oppressive foreign king, foreign power. And then bloodied and bruised and miserable, Israel will come crawling back to God, cry out to the Lord. And then the final part of the cycle, God will raise up a man or woman to rescue Israel, to deliver Israel. And so the stories, very interesting stories in the book of Judges, and the details will change, and the characters are so interesting, and the different people God raises up, and the circumstances change, but the vicious cycle continues to repeat, and it's very, very familiar when we get to the end of the book of Judges. Uh, And as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, this cycle So you kind of have to imagine it's circling around, but it's also each circle is moving a little bit further down because the cycle gets progressively worse as you work through the stories along that timeline in the book of Judges. Uh, The further you go, kind of the worse the oppression gets. Uh, The further you go in the book of Judges, the worse the judges get. The more flawed these people become who God raises up as deliverers. And so we come tonight to our first judge, Othniel, and he is the only judge in the book of Judges who were presented with 100% good information about him, like he is a good guy, he is reliable, he is faithful, Um, and this is Othniel. And the judge's cycle in his lifetime, it's right there in those three verses that we read tonight. And I think I've got a graphic on on this cycle here. So we've got uh, the sin idolatry, the Israelites were sinning, they were forgetting about God, Uh, the servitude, the Lord sold them over to this foreign king, and then the cry, the supplication in Judges 3, 4, they cried out to the Lord, and then finally the rescue God raises up Othniel, son of Canaz, to rescue the people of Israel. Now, it's kind of interesting to me. This is like reality TV. I mean, this trashy tales about dysfunctional characters, it is good. It is, I mean, it's interesting. I'll put it that way, not good. But it holds our attention. And this probably explains why everyone has heard of a guy named Samson. Right? We've all heard of Your kids have probably heard of Samson. Everybody talks about Samson. Very few people have heard of Othniel. Less interesting because he's such a good guy. I mean, there have been movies produced about Samson, not about Othniel. We were talking about Samson. Uh, we were talking about Branson when I came in earlier. Branson, there's a show at the Sight and Sound Theater right now, a live theatrical show. Maybe some of you guys have seen Samson. It's happening there in Branson right now. They're not going to do a production of Othniel. No one would buy tickets to Othniel. Samson, though, is interesting. 
because you're getting into the really deeply flawed uh, judges at that point. Very interesting folks in that respect. So Othniel's a good guy. He's a godly man. Uh, he's the sort of guy that you'd be happy if your daughter brought home and introduced you. Yeah, this is my boyfriend. Uh, we're talking about getting married. He's one of those guys. He comes from good stock. He comes from the tribe of Judah, um, Israel's biggest tribe, and the tribe that will, will, it will be Jesus' tribe, right? He's coming from this tribe as well. And he is a nephew of Caleb, legendary hero of faith. So Othniel has got a, lot of, a great resume, but also seems like a really good person as well. And so Othniel's name even is impressive. His name means Lion of God. Lion of God. And he lived up to his name. Flawless? No, surely not. But good and reliable? Yes, he was. The only flawless leader in the history of God's people was Jesus. Um, everyone else is just an imperfect person. But Othniel was the right man for the job as Israel was drifting further and further toward the ditch. And God needed to pull them out wake them up by disciplining them. Now, like I said earlier, this guy Cushan Rishathium, this foreign king of Aram, he's the rumble strip that's going to get their attention. Um, and even, <laughs> this is interesting, names, yeah, sometimes we just read through the Bible and Especially in the Old Testament, you really want to pay attention to people's names. Like Othniel, Lion of God. What does this guy's really bizarre name, Cushan Rishathium, mean? It means literally, Dark One of Double Evil. In the Hebrew, Dark One of Double Evil. This dude's a villain, okay? And so for eight long years, this fellow, the king of Aram, is oppressing the Israelites. Life is miserable. They're being enslaved by these folks. Um, and it would be an, a convenient thing at this stage in Israel's history to kind of walk away from the story and say, look at that. God doesn't care about his people anymore. Look at what he's allowed to happen to them. God has abandoned his people be easy to walk away thinking that when really it's precisely the opposite that's happening in the book of Judges. In fact, God cares so much that he is going to shake them. He's going to wake them up. He's not going to turn his hands loose of his people. And so before they metaphorically crash into a ditch, God is going to wake them up. And that's what this is about, this discipline. And we know this even from the New Testament. God is a father, and good fathers discipline their children. The worst kind of father is the one who completely neglects his children. That's a terrible form of abuse. So God does this because he wants something better for his people than for them to drift off and be just like all of the other nations. So Hebrews chapter 12, I couldn't resist. We've got to just read this. Um, just see that this is still in effect today. If God loves you and you have this relationship with him, he's going to shake you from time to time. He's going to send some circumstances, some things in your life to get your attention. And you have, for, uh, have you forgotten the, I love this, the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children. These are encouraging words. He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up 
when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. He punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? And he says, think of the contrary. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate. You are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we even more respect the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in his way. So in this sense, the anger of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord, is a sign of love. It is not a sign of neglect. It is not a sign of hate. It is his love that causes him not to turn loose of his children. And so Israel had drifted from God. The text says there in verse 7 that they had, quote-unquote, forgotten God. That's an interesting phrase, forgotten God. It doesn't mean that they had become, in the course of one generation, a people who no longer professed belief in God, they certainly did profess a belief in God. And to for, so, so to forget about God, it's not, to, it's not really to lose information. It's not really to lose data about the Lord. But it is to drift to a point where your life no longer corresponds to that data. The truth is here and your life is headed off over here. It's not atheism. It's more like, I've heard it called these days, practical atheism. Um, a place where you've got the right information about God, you make the right confession about God, except uh, your life isn't changed in any tangible way by your relationship with God. You aren't becoming more holy. And so in Israel's case, this is the example, they were supposed to live in ways that set them apart. They were supposed to be God's holy people uh, and set apart from the nations that were around them. In fact, those other nations really, really needed Israel to be who they were supposed to be. The world needed to see what it looks like to walk in a special father-child relationship with the Lord, and Israel was going to be on a pedestal showing the world what that looks like. And instead, I mean, you saw it in the text, they just start blending in with all of the cultures around them. Uh, the sons are given in marriage to the daughters of the pagans, and the, the daughters are given in marriage to the sons of the pagans. And at some point, they actually start integrating Baal and Asherah worship into their spiritual practices. It's not like they no longer mentioned the name of Yahweh or believed in God. They just built this other stuff into the spiritual life of the nation wasn't 
a purposeful choice to reject God, uh, but it was a drift into a more comfortable lifestyle that matched up with the cultures around them, uh, a lifestyle which we see here where they were no longer exclusively God's people. So forgetting the Lord, it's a process. It happens over a period of time. And somewhere along the way, you just aren't walking in line with the truth of who God is and the truth of who God has called you to be. That's what forgetting the Lord means. It's not like, oh, oh yeah, now I remember God. No, it's, it's drifting away from what you know to be true. Church becomes l- more marginal, right? Um, less central to your life. Um, the Bible, God's Word... Uh, study of the Bible, reading of the Bible becomes more and more sporadic. Prayer becomes more cold and heartless and rote. And there is a distinctive lack of sensitivity to sin. Kind of a complacency to the sin in your life. And I think we can safely say, drift is normal. I think we can say that. I mean, we read the book of Judges. We see that. We see it happening in our own lives as well. Uh, It is inevitable, unless there are constant course correction, unless there's a constant turning in to God. Um, And I like this quote from former Supreme Court Justice way back when, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Listen to what he said. He said, I find the great thing in this world is not so much where we stand but in what direction we are moving. To reach the port of heaven, we must sail sometimes with the wind and sometimes against it. But we must sail and not drift, nor lie at anchor. I like that. Basically, I think he's saying if you're not growing, you're dying. So Israel, broken bruised under the oppression of this pagan king. They collectively get on their knees. They cry out to the Lord, hear our prayers. And he hears. This is what happens in the book of Judges. He hears. And his answer is this fellow Othniel, who God raises up. He puts his spirit on this man in a special way. And this man will lead the tribes into battle and victory over this pagan oppressor. And peace is restored during his lifetime, four decades. Now a note here. This is just, I I may be off on this, but as far as I can tell, as I look through Judges, Othniel is the only judge as far as I can tell, who actually led all of the tribes, all of the nation into Israel. I think as we move through, they're either fighting evil on their own, a la Samson, or they're fighting with some coalition of a group of tribes. But Othniel is Israel's leader. He leads all of the people into this battle, uh, or all of the soldiers into this battle, and finds victory. So at the end of this cycle... There is a restoration of this relationship with God, a refreshing of that, a rebooting of that. There is peace in the land for 40 years. So God loves us so much that he will not sit on the sidelines while we self-destruct, okay? He's not just going to sit there and watch you destroy your life. Um, He's not going to let you just drift out of his channel of blessing and favor, He'll do things to get your attention. And there's a word for this turning point. 
when a disciple, when a follower of God recognizes that they have drifted, when they have this sense uh, of, of profound brokenness and a desire to return to the Lord. And that word, of course, is repentance. Metanoia. Repentance. And it is critical that we understand that drift is normal, that it's going to happen, and so repentance is actually needed over and over and over again. It is a constant need for disciples to repent. It is not a one-time event. I repented. I decided to follow Jesus. Done. That's not the way this works. Um, it doesn't work any that, that way any more than, say, getting on the interstate and setting your steering wheel in the direction of your destination and turning loose. No, it requires constant corrections along the way to stay in the middle of that lane, to stay in the middle of the blessing of God. And so the Spirit of God will call us to repent time and time again so that we are constantly realigning ourselves with God so that we do not forget the Lord. Martin Luther, great reformer of the church. In fact, we celebrated 500 years since the Reformation last fall. The first of his 95 theses that he nailed on the church door goes like this. Number one on his list. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Interesting. Constant. The Spirit calling us to align and to realign ourselves with the Lord over and over again. So may we cry out, as the Israelites did, when we sense that we have moved from His favor, that we have forgotten the Lord, that we have created distance between ourselves and the Lord. And then the last words that Martin Luther scrawled are these. Before he died in February of 1546, he, he scrawled these words, We are beggars. This is true. <laughs> we are beggars. For, from beginning to end, he knew who he was. I'm a rebel. I'm a sinner. I'm a desperate beggar whose salvation depends on the lavish grace of God. So turning from sin, repentance, it isn't just an inaugural act. It isn't just something you do right before your baptism. <laughs> it's a day-in, day-out reality for Christians. It is our perpetual posture, repentance. And back to this idea of forgetting God again. Again, it's not like you forget information. It's not in your life. And it's that other idols, other interests, other concerns, other pursuits, they come to the forefront. They hold your attention. They hold the affections of your heart. And to say that the Israelites forgot God is really to say that they were at a point where what they knew to be true about God was no longer central. It was no longer in the forefront of their communal life together. Now, Michael, this is one of the unique things that we get to do as, as gospel preachers. 
we have this interesting uh, mission, really, because the mission that I have is not, not to teach you new things. Like, how do you come up with new things constantly? I, know, I haven't taught you guys a new thing in nine and a half years here. Um, it's not to teach new things. The mission is to constantly remind God's people of what they already know and who they already know. That's the mission. In fact, Peter put it very well. Peter's writing this letter, 2 Peter 1.12. I love what he said. He said, guys, he said, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. It's like my role is to keep reminding you of the truth, to keep bringing you back on course, to keep refreshing what you know. I will always remind you, Peter says. I'll always bring the gospel to the forefront of your minds. I'll always call your hearts back to the good news. And Jesus understood this very well. I mean, the one thing he instituted, like said, I want to make sure you do this, is the Lord's Supper. I mean, he made a point at the end of his life. I want you to do this. When you gather together, do this in remembrance so you won't forget. Do it in remembrance of me. Remembering and repenting. These are the constant requirements of a faithful life. So one final word tonight. Othniel was a great leader. But the end of his story is final chapter is his death. He passes away. And that time of peace comes to a conclusion. Othniel, the Lion of God, ends up being a passing shadow pointing to a better Savior. Another from the tribe of Judah, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, Jesus. Jesus' life did not end in death. His reign continues. The peace he brings lasts forever. Let's pray and then we'll sing together. Lord, we sense your Spirit calling us back to you. In a worship assembly, an old hymn that stirs our hearts. In the wee hours of the night when we wake up and we consider you and cry out in prayer, our spirits long for you. Father, we pray that we will be sensitive to our sinfulness. We are beggars. This is true. That we'll be grateful at the salvation we have received through Jesus Christ. And may we live lives that bring honor to Him, our Rescuer, whose kingdom lasts not for 40 years, but lasts forever. We pray that your holiness will be evident in our lives. 
that we will grow as disciples to be more and more made in the image of Jesus. We pray, Father, that your discipline will be a cause for gladness in our lives. Sure, not at the time we're experiencing it, but gladness that you love us enough to call us back home. And we are so grateful that you have not abandoned us, that you have not turned loose of us, but that you love us enough to keep calling us back. Thank you, Jesus, for being our rescuer, for setting us free from sin and shame, for giving us a hope for this life and even beyond. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen.